Everybody remembers their first wave, whether it be in the ocean, their first break in business, or their first big win. I'm David McClymont, a former competitive surfer now turned C-suite executive leading the Palm Beach Symphony into its 48th season and your host on the Waves of Success podcast. This show is brought to you by IYC Yachts, Shervo, and Square Grouper. Produced by MediaZone. Hey everybody, I'm David McClymont, your host of Waves of Success, and I am thrilled to welcome an incredible guest with us today. She was named in 2020 and 2021 by Barron's as one of the top 100 influential business leaders in the finance area. Today, I have Jenny Johnson, CEO of Franklin Templeton. Jenny, thank you so much for being with me. It's great to be here, Dave. Thanks you for having me. It's my pleasure. So I'm looking forward to catching up, learning a lot more about what you've been up to leading Franklin Templeton. And congratulations, by the way. I guess you're in your almost second year almost. serving as CEO. Yeah. 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 So talk to me a little bit about what you've been doing, both personally and professionally for the past couple of years. I know <laughs> we were talking off camera. You just moved to Palm Beach, which is exciting. I did. I moved uh, from California. It's great to be here. I got a lot of family members here, so um, I'll, I'll really enjoying it. That's terrific. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your business. You know, I, I find it fascinating. You and I were talking off camera. Right out of college, I had the opportunity to work for UBS and manage money for banks, pension plans, and insurance companies. What I find to be very fascinating is that there is a misconception, I think, even still today, with people not truly understanding finance and the world of finance and how you can leverage finance to achieve some of your goals. So for the listeners that might not be familiar with Franklin Templeton or just the world of finance, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Great. So um, Franklin Templeton is a global asset management company. We manage $1.6 trillion in assets for clients. Uh, and we are global. We have clients in, in 155 countries. Uh, we have over 100 offices uh, and offices in 32 countries. Uh, and we manage money for all sorts of people, folks who are, are just trying to save enough money for retirement to, you know, really sophisticated sovereign wealth funds. How'd you get started? <laughs> well, kind of, uh, kind of in my blood, I guess, since uh, I'm a third generation to... Uh, to run Franklin Templeton. It was started by my grandfather, although he gets credit for starting it. But the reality is my father took it over when it was uh, just two and a half million dollars in assets under management and and, uh, and a part-time uh, secretary was, I think, the full employee base when he took over. What year was that? I think he took over in uh, 54, somewhere, somewhere in the 50s. I think it was started, maybe it was 57. I think it was started in 47. Uh, and I think he took over in 57. And you got started there when you were very young. We were talking about that off camera. I did. Where I was sharing with you that at the age of 10, I worked for my dad's gas station. And I would walk out to the people that wanted to get gas and say to them, do you need me to fill it up? So obviously, we both believe in entrepreneurialism and working young. Well, how old were you when you started? And, and they looked at you as a 10-year-old and said, listen, kid, I'm not giving you my money. That's I've exactly right. <laughs> yeah, go get somebody that works here. Yeah. Uh, so I, thank goodness for those summer jobs that we can get from our parents. So true. Um, so I, yeah, I, I started out in the mailroom, uh, when I was 14, uh, working for my dad and, and I, we all, the, all seven kids in the family worked at, at some point in their life, uh, for, uh, for Franklin. Yeah. Exciting. What have you learned along the way? Obviously you've gone through several years of working there in different positions. And when I reflect back on my career, 
the different things that I've learned along the way from working in investment banking to managing a private Jack Nicholas country club, working for Loggerhead and now being at the symphony, it's sort of interesting to reflect back and realize the things that you've learned along the way. What are some of the things that you've learned along the way that we can share with our listeners that might be great advice? Okay, but then I want to ask you, like what thread in those different career moments for you, from surfing to running a symphony uh, and working at a gas station, like what threads are the same in any business? Um, what I would say, so you you kind of started out and said, hey, I, you know, I started out managing money and a lot of people would be uh, you know, interested in how to think about it. I mean, the, I think the reality is probably... 90% of the people want their money managed well, but don't really want to do it themselves, right? And um, and money is a means to an end, right? They have, they have personal goals. Uh, it can be as simple as, uh, you know, I just want to make sure I don't lose my house when I retire or I have enough money to retire with dignity, um, to have a special needs child, and I want to make sure that there's enough money when I'm gone to take care of that child, uh, or gosh, I'd really love that second house on the beach if I'm doing really, really well. And, and so... The, the money management part is really a means to an end. And, um, you know, I think that it's important as an industry that we actually talk about it that way. I think as, as any industry, we get so internally focused and in using all the jargon in our business. Did you beat this benchmark? What's the alpha that you got? That uh, sometimes we've lost sight of uh, really what the end game is. And how do you educate the public as to sort of lowering the barrier of entry, if you will? And I'll give you a case in point. I had lunch yesterday in Palm Beach with a woman that was probably in her 50s, very educated, I think has a PhD, and had not heard or read the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And you know, for me, that's something that I require all of my children to read in eighth grade, and then they have to do a report on it, which, of course, they're not happy about when that happens. But when they get to be later in life, they appreciate the fundamentals of money management and understanding the power of money. So you know, how is Franklin Templeton, how are you and your team trying to educate the community as to the different tools that you have to help people reach those goals. Will you kick me off this podcast if I admit that I haven't read that book either? No, no, I won't. <laughs> okay, I think good. you've accomplished quite a bit. That <laughs> um, You know what? Actually, that is a really important part of what we do. Uh, and so most, mostly Franklin Templeton actually partners with firms like UBS. UBS is a great partner of ours, uh, where they have financial advisors who are dealing directly with the end client, and we're providing portfolio solutions to those advisors. And you know, it's really important that you customize portfolios and money management to the individual's needs, really understanding what their risk tolerance is, what their goals are. Uh, and so we're big believers in having that person who's having that conversation. Because just like a good doctor has to kind of extract out of you, you know, what are the details and those symptoms, what's real, what's not, um, a good financial advisor is really trying to understand what are your motivators. Um, so we provide, one is we have those end uh, partners that really are talking to the clients. And then two, uh, we provide, and, and technology innovation has been terrific for this, a lot of tools that help customize for individuals. Uh, it can be on the desktop, it can be on your phone, uh, and can customize portfolios where, you, you know, it asks you questions to, to understand your goals uh, and um, and be able to provide portfolios that are really targeted to an individual's risk. Um, so we provide those kind of tools to advisors as well as the education to individuals. And, and actually, we have something at Franklin Templeton called the Franklin Templeton Academy, which is pretty unique. And honestly, it started out when we, in 1995, 
were setting up an asset management company in India. And what we realized is you couldn't really sell a mutual fund when folks didn't understand what a stock or bond was. These were things that we'd kind of taken for granted. So we thought, well, we really got to go educate um, folks on this. And so we created this academy. And what surprised us is that we thought it would be something that was only uh, used in emerging markets, but actually in developed markets too. You know, everybody kind of needs that financial education to understand right now, digital assets is a big, you know, blockchain, Bitcoin. Um, there's always something kind of new that people need to be educated on and understanding the risks. And so we feel that it's um, on us to, to do as much as we can to ensure that people understand what they're buying and that we have the right solutions for them. I'm glad you brought up Bitcoin and blockchain because from the days that I was in the business, this has changed so much. So talk to me a little bit about that with how are you pivoting, navigating the new digital assets, which have really gained tremendous popularity? Yeah, so I uh, I say that, that Bitcoin is the greatest distraction from the greatest disruptor coming to the financial services in my 30 plus years in this industry. And, um, you know, I used to say, ah, you know, there'll be no use for Bitcoin. I, I think there'll be a place for Bitcoin, but let's face it, governments like to control their currency. Uh, that's really important for governments to be able to do. And so anytime you've already seen China do it, you've actually seen a few markets prohibited. Anytime that, that Bitcoin became a threat to a currency, uh, I think there's going to be a clampdown on it. But why do I still think there's something there? I think there's enough people, you know, talk to folks in Israel, talk to people, you know, in um, Eastern Europe and other places where they'll say, gosh, my parents had all of their wealth taken from them. And so there's a feeling, oh, I just want to put a piece of this in Bitcoin. Um, so I think there's probably some market there. But the real exciting and in many ways, the Wild West that I think is it's a little, um, you know, kind of scary for anybody in the financial services who's running businesses because if you look in history, anytime there's great technological disruption, rarely do the incumbents come out well, right? Because the incumbents just keep doing what they're doing while the disruptors find a different way to do it, leveraging technology. And what's happening with blockchain is uh, a lot of the cost in the financial services system is is the reconciliation of data across systems. Well, blockchain, once it's recorded in the block and added to the chain, it is forever recorded. You don't need, that's your source of truth. There's no need to uh, go out and reconcile it. And um, and then there, so one is I think governments are actually over time gonna like it because today if there's uh, money exchanged hands and it's not recorded, the government can't tax it, right? But if it's on the blockchain, you now know who you can tax. And oh, by the way, it can be programmed in there as a smart contract so that they can immediately get their share. So there's gonna be incentives, I think. And then I think many people feel that cyber risk, cybersecurity risk is a big risk of the future to financial services companies. Well, the fact that it's what's called a distributed ledger, there's multiple independent parties that validate a transaction, it's actually going to be much greater protection from cybersecurity. So I think it becomes significant. We're going to see a lot of interesting things that happen in financial services, but it actually impacts um, sorry, you can get me on this topic and I can really go, but it, it, it'll impact business models in ways that are pretty interesting. So for example, there's a, there's a company today, when you think about when you do a Google search, right, there's an economic value to your 
doing that Google search that, oh, by the way, Google captures. They just had, you know, great earnings today, right? They, from their ads, they capture that revenue. This company will say, if you do a search on here, I will pay you through our coins for a percentage. Maybe you get a third of that economic value, right? So that's going to change the business model there. Um, there's another company that wants to be the fastest uh, provider of content, streaming content. And so when you are watching their content, you're agreeing to that they can use your phone or whatever your device is to cache that content and, and send it to the next guy. And they pay you in what's called Tether. So that's their coin. So now you become part, you're not just a client, you actually become part of their infrastructure to be able to provide their services. So, you know, right now, we're really, really at the early stages. I, I always say like Ethereum, and there's a lot of different ones out there, Cardano, Solana, um, that are like the iPhone, right? They're actually platforms, unlike Bitcoin, which is trying to be a currency. These are platforms that imagine when Steve Jobs came out with the iPhone, you know, you you looked at it and you said, well, this is pretty interesting. I get maps, I get a flashlight, I can, you know, listen to music, right? And, and it's a phone too, isn't that great? He understood that he was unlocking the imagination of the world. And that's where we are at that early stages in, in blockchain, where you're coming out with these platforms and you're unleashing really the creativity that's coming out. Is it cultural? Is to it that point of imagination and creativity, Oh, for sure. Uh, right? I, I think people, there, there's these things, uh, right now Ethereum's having a split between what's called proof of work, proof of stake. And you, you'll hear people talk about, I don't like blockchain because it uses up too much energy. That's the proof of work validation. Uh, but a proof of stake validation is more like I put up my coins and as long as I'm accurate, I get more coins back. Um, well, Ethereum started out as proof of work. They want to become proof of stake. But because there's no CEO there making a decision to say, this is the way we're going to go, you have to get a voting of 51%. It becomes a, a, a little bit uh, bureaucratic. And so there's things here in how we think about equity markets and ownership um, that get changed a bit. And that's harder for traditional people like me to sort of think about how, how, do, you, how do you build businesses around that? We were invited by Art Basel to go down and do a performance for an artist, and I can't remember the name of the artist, but very well-known artist that passed away from Haiti, and they were selling the art using- NFTs. Oh, and right. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, this is so fascinating. Yeah. And some of the artwork was obviously very expensive, so you're really starting to see it within the marketplace, I think, a lot more, aren't you? Yeah. No, it's interesting. On the on the art and NFT, so my son just texted me today and said, Mom, look at the NFT I just bought. And I was like, uh-huh. Okay, and what do you get? How much do you pay for that, right? So, I, to me, I'm a big believer that when non fungible tokens, NFTs, one can cross the physical world. So, Louis Vuitton, if you buy their bag, they embed, I guess it's a chip or something that you can validate with an algorithm that, hey, this is a legitimate bag. So, that's crossing the physical world. So, I think that gets really interesting as more people do that. I, I think, you know, I have a hard time imagining that I'm going to spend a millions of dollars on a digital piece of art that everybody else can have, but I can say mine's original. Now, if over time, when you view that piece of art, art I get paid some, you know, some some fee through through some coin, now that starts to get interesting, right? And I think we're, that's probably where the market ultimately evolves. Um, so again, it's, it's the Wild West, who knows? It is, it's how. fascinating. I was on a surfing trip in El Salvador over the summer, and the town, I can't remember the previous name of the town, but they've renamed it Surf City 
which was really interesting, obviously, yeah. for SEO and branding and search and everything sure. else. But I believe it was the founder of Bitcoin or one of the Bitcoin oh, companies <laughs> that invested into El Salvador okay. and actually compensated a lot of the citizens. So we're seeing a lot shake up there. Okay, There's Let's, a lot of controversy on who actually created Bitcoin. We don't really know. There's a lot of people claiming it. So we don't really know yet. Interesting. Yeah. Like the internet. Like the <laughs> right? I thought Al Gore did that. You're right. Let's segue into technology in San Francisco. So Franklin Templeton's based just outside of Silicon Valley, correct? Mm, yes. And obviously Silicon is one of the technological hubs, if not the technological hub for the world. How much are you seeing technology not only influence your business, but the area out there? I would imagine that as we talk about Bitcoin and these different investment vehicles, you know, you're probably seeing a lot change with technology. I know that when I worked in the business, I used to actually take my trades and we would go to the person that was in the trade office physically. We would hand in the trade. It was handwritten. I would say a quarter of a point, how much of a spread. I mean, those days are long gone where people are trading worldwide with apps and everything else. Now I have it on my phone where I can trade anywhere in the world. So talk a little bit about what you're seeing with technology influencing the business model. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is... um, that it so so you know AI and data science. I, I think anybody who's in the business we're in as active managers are going to have to be exceptional at finding insights from non-traditional sources of data. So there's just a thirst for more and more data, and then all kind of the picks and shovels that go along with that to be able to analyze it, to be able to store it, to be able to access it quickly. Um, so that's one part of it. Uh, the other thing that's pretty interesting, you know, the the customization that could happen today with an individual's portfolio, uh, you're going to see a lot less and less pooled vehicles like mutual funds and a lot more just, you know, separate accounts that essentially take a strategy of a mutual fund and it's delivered to the client in all the individual holdings. Uh, it's going to be tax managed. It's going to have what we call ESG, environmental social governance, sort of sustainability type um, factors that will be considered in that. Uh, but what's really interesting is, and a lot of this gets enabled by blockchain, is the unlocking of illiquid assets and creating fractional ownership so that you can own a bunch of little pieces of X. So we we have an incubator in uh, in our headquarters in, in, in Silicon Valley. Uh, we screen about 20 companies a month and we have 12 in our incubator, all of which we think have some potential to disrupt our traditional business. And one of them is a company that fractionalizes farmland. So think about, you know, you have farmers who try to pass down the farm generation after generation. It's difficult for a farmer. They've got to put capital investments in equipment. Uh, you know, it tends to be something where you're asset rich and cash poor as a farmer, but they do it and they love it. Well, they can sell off a slice of their farm to somebody who just owns a little piece of the farm. And oh, by the way, they own 30 pieces of the farm. And maybe they own it in a token that I can then go on to an exchange and sell to you. So now your portfolio has this non-correlated assets to equities. When the equity market gets really volatile, you're like, yeah, but I still have this over here. So um, I think there's going to be some really interesting creative uh, investments that come out of being able to essentially uh, uh, fractionalize ownership. Interesting. Let's sh- let's shift gears to work-life balance. <laughs> so you have five children. I have four children. And I know that having four children has been a challenge, trying to create that work-life balance. You've obviously done a very nice job raising those five children. Talk to me about how you've been able to do that and balance the work-life of ascending at Franklin Templeton, now to the CEO, but also probably being CEO of the five children 
and trying to make sure that you're raising them with the same love and dedication. So, uh, Dave, you know, my parents and, uh, you know, my, uh, so I'm one of seven, and my mother um, went back somewhere along the way to college and then graduated from Stanford Medical School, and I'm number six of seven. So I always say that I'm a second-generation guilty working mom, which is helpful, but uh, I'm kind of an underachiever because when I told my father that I was uh, pregnant with my fifth and final child, remember I was number six, without missing a beat, he looked at me and he said, what if your mother and I had stopped at five? And I was like, ah, ah, I'm older. Um, no, I, you know, I what I say to employees is, look, this is a marathon, not a sprint, right? And so there's never a perfect answer. Sometimes work is going to demand more of your time. Sometimes um, home is going to demand more of your time. And as a company, we have to understand that and accommodate when that's the case. And that creates tremendous loyalty. I think today with um, with people getting more comfortable being able to work from anywhere, that's actually going to play to women's strengths because women are used to taking on a greater share of the home effort. And, you know, if you put your kids down and then go back and finish up work at 10 o'clock at night, as long as the job that, that it's okay for whatever you're doing and, and you get the job done, that's, that's a good thing for all of us. Um, so, uh, you know, there's never a perfect balance. What I say is, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. Like I love what I do. And I think, you know, based on how you've described your career, I'm guessing you followed things that you love to do. Absolutely. I remember Oprah saying that about 20 years ago and I never forgot it. Okay. I didn't watch Oprah, but. Well, I, I didn't watch it either, but I remember her saying it. <laughs> but it's but true. She, it's very true. It she true. said, if you find a passion, figure out a way to get paid for that passion. Yeah. You'll never work another day in your life. 100%. And there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. A lot of truth to that. Speaking of women working in business, you were named 2020 and 2021 top most influential businesswoman according to Barron's. What do you think your role is as a woman uh, being the CEO of a company in an industry where most of the company heads are men? So, look, I, I think, um, and by the way, that was 100 women. So I, w I wasn't the top one. I was with 99 one, others. One of the <laughs> one top, <laughs> nonetheless. Um, so... Here's what I would say. I, I actually, um, I think women are really good, and there's a lot of studies that prove this uh, in the financial services space. I think the industry has done a bad job of attracting women. Um, you know, and I, 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 my daughter, when I was asking uh, my daughters whether any, I was actually, all my kids, are any of you going to follow me in the business? Uh, and my daughter said, oh, mom, no, I want to do something that helps people. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is something that really helps people. Like, you know, and I go through my, if you, if people want to retire or they have a special needs child, whatever, like this is the business to help people. And I realize we don't do a good job of talking about it in that way. And so we turn off girls before they ever gave the, the business a chance. Um, so Franklin Templeton is doing programs with things like Girls Who Invest. Uh, we have a, a program with, because the same issue actually is um, with many underrepresented groups. So we have a program with historically black colleges and universities because you can't see yourself in something if you don't actually relate to people in it. So bringing them in as interns, either in high school or college, and doing a program to try to attract people in it. So one is trying to change that pipeline into this business. Um, but there's some fundamental things. I mean, I, I now talk only 2% of venture capital money 
goes to female entrepreneurs. 50% of the population gets 2%. And oh, by the way, the studies have shown that they have twice the returns of an average VC fund. So two times the returns. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons why uh, why that's probably that case. But I think as a, as a female executive in this space, I can be a bit of a voice around that um, and, uh, and, and hopefully can, you know, show my enthusiasm for this business and, and, you know, maybe inspire some, some, uh, young women to join it. Which I think is phenomenal and keep it up. So you talked about DEI, which obviously is a hot topic right now in every industry. It's very top and relative to the nonprofit industry, both from a board standpoint, whether it be from the orchestra, you know, what is Franklin Templeton doing to make sure that they're living up to the diversity and inclusion uh, so first I would say that we fundamentally believe having a diverse workforce is a growth story. It's about fielding the best team. And the best team isn't always the best athlete in every space. It's making sure you have the best team that's working together. And part of that is is making sure, and there are studies that show this, that when you are trying to solve problems and you get people with diverse views in the room to solve the problem, they will expand the possibilities of outcomes and that will expand your likelihood of success. So let's face it, if I'm talking to you and you agree with me, I think, wow, he's a really smart guy, right? And you're easy to talk to and we have fun. It's hard to have to, to work to deal working through somebody who disagrees with you. And so people's tendency is to hire people who think the way they think, um, to, to just ask the people who they know are going to kind of reaffirm whatever their position is. And so we feel strongly that it's, uh, you know, we have to field that team of differing views and the only way to do it. And that's, that's anything from ethnicity, from gender, sexual orientation, education, um, you know, anything can, socioeconomic status can give you different views. Our clients cover every spectrum. And so we have to make sure that we have that kind of thought leadership within the firm. And so we are, we just uh, published a corporate social responsibility scorecard that talks about our metrics. Um, we're trying to be more transparent around those. Uh, we're measuring, as I said, we're trying to change the pipeline of people coming into our business. Uh, we're trying to be aware of who's promoted. We want to look at turnover rates in all different angles to make sure that there isn't um, isn't uh, you know a group that that is falling off because maybe you're not responding. And I'm going to be completely you know open with something that just came up. Our uh, we, we we have just come out with a huge advertising campaign um, and uh, called Hello Progress. And our head of DNI was a little bit upset because they didn't actually run it by her. And when you looked at the commercials, to be honest, there were some things that you know where. We had, say, the black guy was the bus driver and the white guy was in the three-piece suit. I mean, very stereotypical in that. And and her comment was, you know, nobody asked me to look at it, right? And it had gone through so many people and n- nobody really noticed. And, and, and you have to have people in the room and they have to be comfortable speaking up, right? You have to be comfortable about voicing your views. So we're trying to create that environment by honestly, just talking about the need to do it and also accepting that we don't always get it right. So true. Define your management style. Our <laughs> listeners love to learn some of the stories of people on the show that have risen to the top of the industry as CEO. You know, How would you define your management style? And what are the lessons you've learned along the way to ascend to CEO? 
Um, so, so I always say about leadership, so I'll start there, that, that I think of it as the four Ps. So people, passion, purpose, and persistence. People look at, get the right team and, 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 you know, hire people smarter than you, people who will stand up to you, um, and, and make sure they're working together as a team. And you will not succeed if you don't get that first P right. So it's all about the team. I have a phenomenal management team. Uh, and then passion, we talked about, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Purpose, describe what you do in such a way that people understand the purpose and can rally around it. Because that's where, you know, people will charge the wall if they believe that this is a good thing to do. And so you've got to be able to have that purpose. And then persistence, you're going to fail. You're going to fail again. And I think probably, you probably feel this with your kids, you know, the most important probably indicator of whether they'll be successful or not is how do they handle failure? Do they get back up, dust themselves off and say, I'm back in the game. Uh, and, and, you know, you have to have that attitude of, okay, that didn't work. It's behind us. Let's, let's move forward. And then I would say people would describe me. I'm, 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 uh, somebody said to me, no ego. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but, uh, you know, I, I, I really believe that everybody brings something to the table in the firm. And we talk a lot about our, you know, people answering the phones. You know, if you have a bad experience uh, when you call somebody and, and you think that whole company is terrible because the one person on the phone, you know, carries that, that you, you just take it and think, well, that must be what everybody is. And so we talk a lot about how every one of us shoulder 75 years of the Franklin Templeton brand on their shoulders. And we need to respect each other and know that the only way we're successful as a firm is if all of us come to the table every day, understanding that responsibility and focusing on doing what's right for our clients. I think it was in Steve Jobs' autobiography, they talk about the fact that that was how he built Apple. They asked him, how did you build this big institution? He said, it's very simple. I hire people that are bigger, better, and smarter than me, and I allow them to tell me what to do. And I call that within my business the inverted triangle, right? So the inverted triangle, the traditional triangle is a vertical triangle where it starts with you, the CEO, I'm the CEO. We make all the decisions. They're all the right decisions. You and I both know that's not true. (laughs) So if you can actually flip the triangle and allow everybody to have a voice and to come to you. I might use that. I might take that one. Okay, Okay. that's good. I like that. You got it. So let's talk about what you like to do. What do you do to unplug? <laughs> well, you know, do you like to read? What books do you like to read? What are your hobbies? What are your passions? Well, I just want you to know that um, I got the Oculus 2 for Christmas from my kids, and um, I became a Jedi master on the Star Wars Vader 3 app. <laughs> I went through all 47 levels. <laughs> I know. That might be a Franklin Templeton commercial. <laughs> About overachieving. Not sure this what is, it means. Well, but, it means this but, is how we'll manage your money. And then I'm proud enough that I'm telling you. <laughs> you should be proud. Uh, no. Um, first of all, I love spending time with my family. We talked about this. I mean, I it, it has been such a incredible uh, godsend to be here in in uh, you know in Florida where my parents are both healthy, spending time with them, a couple of my siblings, uh, one of my children, and I'm just having and my partners here. I'm just having fun being here. It's great. Uh, I, I got a jet ski. And so I go, I love jet skiing. I hadn't done much of that before. So, um, you know, just enjoying, enjoying life. Listen, I want to thank you so very much for being our guest on Waves of Success. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jenny Johnson, CEO of Franklin Templeton. Until our next episode, we want to thank you. Make sure that you like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and all social media channels. Until next time, we look forward to seeing you catch your wave.
If you enjoyed this episode of Waves of Success, don't forget to like, follow, and share. We'd like to thank our sponsors, IYC Yachts, Chervo, Square Grouper, and the production team at MediaZone.